and welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about increased tensions between Iran and the United States in the past year and the possibility of a military conflict between the two countries. My guest today is Paul Piller, senior fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security Studies, who had a 28-year career at the CIA and used to be the National Intelligence Officer for Near East and South Asia. Paul, welcome to the Iran Podcast. Thank you, Nagar. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's talk about your most recent piece a year ago the U.S. assassinated a national leader. This was the title of your piece. You talk about the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. And I also want to connect this uh, later to the recent assassination of Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the Iranian nuclear scientist. But let's talk about the Soleimani assassination, which we're now in the anniversary of that past January with the order of Donald Trump and a drone attack in Baghdad International Airport. Qasem Soleimani, and, as well as an Iraqi commander, were assassinated. Talk about that, how you see that killing, and how that it, it, it plays out, basically, into the uh, broader geopolitical strategy of this administration. Well, there are two sets of issues to think about and to worry about in connection with that action. Uh, the one that's perhaps comes more immediately to mind is what sort of further retaliation uh, Iran might attempt uh, in return for this assassination of of someone who was a very major political and military figure, uh, a very prominent person in Iran. Uh, There was just a few days after the assassination uh, last January, uh, the rocket attack on a couple of Iraqi bases uh, where there were U.S. personnel. There were no fatalities, but as we later learned, there were uh, what were described as brain injuries to, to some American personnel. Uh, but that was, that was really not the end of it. The, you know, Foreign Minister Zarif has specifically been asked since then, did that attack close the books uh, on the assassination and the prospect of retaliation? And he specifically said, no, it does not. Um, so, uh, there may be something yet to come and, and we, we need to worry about that. But I think what we as Americans also need to think about in connection with what happened a year ago is, you know, what is the nature of the actions that we ourselves, Americans are taking as part of this unfortunate relationship that the U S Iranian relationship has become. This action, uh, assassination of a senior figure uh, in another government, was uh, the kind of thing that we normally associate with terrorists and rogue regimes. Uh, It's not the kind of thing that traditionally we've thought of as part of the U.S. toolbox. And yet, uh, the way it gets talked about here in this country is as if it was uh, naturally a good thing, and it's even looked at uh, by some of the current administration officials as a so-called uh, achievement. The only thing I noted in, in the piece you referred to, that uh, the only thing that keeps that assassination from formally meeting the U.S.'s own definition of international terrorism is that it was not conducted clandestinely or through uh, a non-state actor or some group as a cutout, but rather was done blatantly and overtly using a military resource, namely an armed drone. But in terms of you know, the the moral 
status of it and really the political status as, as well it it's it's of a piece with the kinds of assassinations we've associated uh, uh, with terrorist groups. And I think that's part of the larger tendency to uh, not ask difficult questions about, you know, which side in this very unfortunate relationship is doing nefarious things and which side is doing noble things. And I think there's no monopoly of, uh, of pride that belongs on one side or the other. Uh, whatever you may think of uh, the actions that Suleimani had been associated with in the past, uh, I would say there's you know some, nothing more nefarious than things like assassinating senior leaders in foreign governments. It's it's simply not what uh, I always thought the United States did. And what kind of precedence does this create, or as some have argued? a green light, basically, a signal to not just the Iranians, but other states and non-state actors in the region and beyond that this type of assassination by another government, as you're saying, officially and publicly is carried out. Do you think this is going to basically start a new era of of, of warcraft in the region and and among other actors as well? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say it would start a new era because we've always had this this sort of unfortunate thing. I mean, uh, look at, for example, what Saudi Arabia did in the connection with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, you know, they, they evidently did not uh, need an example from us. But following on, on your point, um, to the extent that we or anyone else might want to object to that sort of thing as it's perpetrated by someone else, you know, our our basis for doing so has obviously been weakened if we do that sort of thing ourselves. Uh, and I think we need to worry not just about setting an example for what might go on in the region committed by Saudis or Israelis or anyone else, but also what might be committed against uh, U.S. targets, um, either as a matter of direct retribution from the likes of Iran or simply as part of uh, this larger unfortunate example. Uh, I suggested, you know, as the way Americans can think about this, um, if you reverse the roles, suppose you had a senior political or military figure, somebody really prominent in the United States, comparable to how Soleimani was so prominent in Iran, who went to visit a neighboring country, say Canada, uh, to confer with uh, the prime minister there on matters of mutual interest, just as Soleimani was reportedly going to Baghdad to confer with the Iraqi prime minister. And you had someone assassinate our senior official on the tarmac at the Ottawa airport. Can you just imagine the outrage that very justifiably there would be among Americans? Well, that that is the direct counterpart of what we did with Soleimani a year ago at the Baghdad airport. Mm -hmm. And taking a step back also because you talk about the relationship between these two countries, Iran and the U.S. adversaries, and you look at the, let's say, broader picture, not just these single events. And at some point in your piece also, you talk about the occupation of Iraq the, after the U.S. invasion in 2003 and how these events have led up to where we are today. Talk about that and how you see the two sides, you talk about the axis of evil, post 9-11, dynamics between Iran and the U.S., how that has basically brought us to the point where the U.S. and Iran are right now. 
Well, this is still related to the issue of Qasem Soleimani uh, in that uh, whenever you hear discussion in the United States about what he did and why we consider him an enemy, uh, what most often comes up is uh, the, the work he did with Iraqi elements in Iraq uh, in opposing what became the U.S. military occupation after the U.S. invasion of Iraq in March of 2003. And, and people say, well, he's got American blood on his hands. And, and in the sense that, uh, you know, he worked with and assisted uh, various Iraqi militias that, that were direct enemies of U.S. forces, uh, that's, that's true. But then you have to back up a bit and say, well, how, how did that situation in Iraq evolve? Well, of course, it began with the U.S. conducting an invasion, uh, beginning an offensive war in March of 2003. Uh, which led to the all the you know the chaos and the uh, the unfortunate events that ensued for for almost a decade afterwards and this was all taking place in iraq a next door neighbor to iran from which a previous offensive war had been waged namely that of saddam hussein who initiated the Iran-Iraq War in 1980, and which incurred enormous human and material costs on both sides, and especially on the Iranian side. So from the perspective of Iran and its leaders, Iraq is a place where it's just imperative that that sort of thing that happened in the 1980s not happen again. It is essential in the Iranian view that whoever is the government in Baghdad has to have at least a cordial relationship with Iran, and certainly not be an enemy of Iran, as the Saddam Hussein regime was. So that's part of the background. The United States, of course, did Iran a favor of sorts by eliminating one of their enemies, Saddam Hussein. But in the Iranian view, that replaced him with another threat, uh, a U.S. military force that invaded this next-door country, which shares a 900-mile border with Iran, and did so right after declaring Iran to be part of an axis of evil, uh, you even had members of the Bush administration who were quoted as saying, take a number, Iran, you're next. And with the invasion leading to what became a prolonged U.S. military occupation. Well, all of that is seen quite unsurprisingly and understandably as a threat by Iranians. Mm -hmm. And that is why, you know, Soleimani's work with Iraqis is looked at, I think, by most Iranians, not as anything nefarious, but as something that a senior officer of Iran uh, actually should have done in the interest of Iranian national security. And um, I want to talk about a different sets of assassinations, which is in a way connected to this, but that's of Iranian nuclear scientists. That's more of a recent event. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, basically the top person in Iran's nuclear program, was just assassinated possibly by Israel. You have written a piece on this titled Facing Up to Israel's Destabilizing Behavior. And we know that Mohsen Fakhrizadeh wasn't the first one. There have been a few other Iranian scientists also assassinated all on Iranian soil also, which is different from the Soleimani episode. Talk about that, how you see these assassinations, which are not done by the U.S., in, in connection with the Soleimani episode and the bigger U.S.-Iran tensions that have definitely increased in the past year, but over the past decade or so, um, how these assassinations of nuclear scientists led us to this um, to this point and what impact basically they had on on this conflict. 
Well, first of all, these assassinations do very much qualify as international terrorism. They uh, crossed international boundaries, they involved uh, lethal force, and they were conducted clandestinely. So you know, whether they, they actually show up in the official statistics of international terrorism, uh, they should. <laughs> you know, we, we've had sort of two separate phases here. There were several years ago, back, I think it was mostly around uh, 2012, 2013, you had five or six of the Iranian scientists who were assassinated uh, similarly uh, in a wave that took place over the course of, of several months and for which Israel was also widely assumed to be you know, the, the ultimate perpetrator, although they uh, probably worked uh, in collusion with internal Iranian resistance elements, especially the Mujahideen-i uh, that has been known to cooperate with Israel. Those earlier ones um, were, were aimed, uh, you know, however vainly, at the idea of directly setting back the Iranian nuclear program back before uh, it was sharply curtailed when the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action came into effect in 2015. Mm. This latest one of Mr. Pakrizadeh, I think, had less of an intent uh, to have a direct effect on the Iranian nuclear program, and it was much more of a political effect coming as it does uh, near the end of the Trump administration with the advent of the Biden administration and its intention to return to compliance with the JCPOA. Uh, it, it looks to me like a spoiler move as one more. Uh, effort by the Netanyahu government in Israel, smiled upon and blessed by the Trump administration on its way out to try to salt the earth some more and spoil the basis for anything that the Biden administration may try to do in returning Iranian U.S. relations to a more peaceful diplomatic route, especially with trying to reinstate uh, the JCPOA. So, you know, assassinations are one way of doing that. I still worry about other things that might happen in the last couple of weeks of the Trump administration uh, that are along the same lines. But I, mm -hmm. but I, my, my point is this most recent one, the purpose really was more political spoilage rather than any direct hope for uh, effect on the nuclear activities of Iran. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the last, uh, the final weeks of the Trump administration, we know there were recent reports that after the election, Donald Trump was seeking military options for striking Iranian nuclear sites. Uh, we've seen tensions again increase. There was just another report of the USS uh, Nimitz being ordered basically by Donald Trump and the Pentagon to not redeploy from the Middle East and to stay in the area to, as the administration says, deter Iran or as a response to Iranian threats against the U.S. Do you think we are going to see a form of military conflict between Iran and the U.S.? Or basically, will Donald Trump, as you called in one of your other pieces, is Trump dangerous enough to start a war with Iran in the next two weeks or so? Well, I think we have to worry about that. I, I don't think Mr. Trump is going to start a war with just a bolt out of the blue, um, you know, n with nothing that can be pointed to as a provocation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, you have hawks in the administration and probably the president himself who are looking for something that could be seen as a provocation. And this gets back to things like the assassination of, of the scientist Bakrizadeh. Probably the hoped for response 
uh, hoped for by the Netanyahu government in Israel and probably by the Trump administration was that Iran would strike back in some way, perhaps an assassination operation of their own, that could be pointed to as an excuse for a, a major military attack uh, as, a, as a counter response. I, I believe the best thing we have going for us right now amidst this very tense and dangerous situation is that Iranian leaders, or at least most of them, I think, realize uh, that they do not have an interest in providing Donald Trump or Benjamin Netanyahu with an excuse uh, to attack Iran. Mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly the, the people in the uh, Rouhani administration and those who are most involved in negotiating the JCPOA, you know, have been counting the days until the end of the Trump administration, hopefully looking to a return for a more peaceful uh, and productive diplomatic path with Mr. Biden in office. And they do not want to give anybody an excuse for spoiling that. Clearly, a lot of restraint has been exercised so far. You know, you, we, we did not see some lashing out in response to the Fakhrizadeh assassination. Uh, we did not see further retaliation for the assassination of Soleimani when we passed the one-year anniversary just a few days ago. That, that, I think, is a sign of restraint. And uh, whether that's going to hold for another uh, couple of weeks, uh, I hope it will, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about the incoming Biden administration. As you said, there are elements, well, the president himself, President Trump and people around him, as well as Benjamin Netanyahu and some other leaders in the in the Persian Gulf era who don't want to see a return to diplomacy or a revival of their own nuclear deal. How difficult do you think the road ahead looks for Joe Biden, who has said he intends to return back to the JCPOA and continue diplomacy with Iran. We just had Jake Sullivan also discussing how this administration, the incoming administration, wants to return to the JCPOA and continue discussions on issues such as Iran's missile program. How difficult do you think these negotiations or the return to the JCPOA, first of all, is going to be for the Biden administration, considering the current political climate in the U.S.? Well, uh, first of all, even if we get past the kind of uh, provocations and responses that we were just talking about that might involve military action, you know, that, that would be the worst sort of atmosphere that uh, Biden could be given. But even, even if, if calm prevails until January 20th, there would still be significant diplomatic and political diplomatic hurdles that would need to be surmounted. It is not quite so easy as just saying, we're going to comply again with the JCPOA and that's going to be it. You know, from Iran's point of view, uh, it was the United States that reneged on the agreement. Uh, Iran gave every indication and continues to give every indication that it wants to maintain the agreement, even to the point of not exceeding any of the limits, you know, continuing to observe the limits in the initial agreement for an entire year after the Trump administration violated its obligations. And it wasn't until a year later and after the Trump administration uh, escalated to all-out economic warfare that Iran began incrementally exceeding uh, the limits on uranium enrichment. I think the main problem here, Nagar, is, is going to be a, a delicate one about timing and sequencing. The, the Iranians, given the background I just mentioned, uh, would naturally feel justified in saying, look, the United States has to make the first moves here. They're the ones who violated the agreement, not us. And so we want to see compliance before we do anything. 
And, and indeed, uh, Foreign Minister Zarif has, has even suggested that the U.S. should return to full compliance with United Nations Security Council Resolution, Resolution 2231, which was mm -hmm. the international blessing of the JCPOA, before it even formally becomes a, a party again to the JCPOA itself. Now, there's another Iranian concern here, and that involves uh, worry that some future administration would try to misuse the so-called snapback provision of uh, snapping back sanctions on Iran, just as the Trump administration tried to misuse it even after they left the agreement. But it's going to be difficult politically back here in the United States for Mr. Biden to do anything like saying, okay, we're going to uh, you know, drop all the sanctions that the Trump administration uh, loaded on. We're going to come back in full compliance. And then we would expect uh, you know, Iran to return to full compliance as well. That that's that would encounter a lot of political resistance back here. So I think there's going to have to be some delicate negotiations. I think the Iranians are going to have to accept that it won't be all a matter of the U.S. coming into compliance first, and then they will re they the Iranians will return to compliance. It's going to have to be something more step by step. Uh, you know, possibly uh, the U.S. administration makes some declaration that you know we hereby are 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 returning to compliance and to uh, become a full member again of the jcpoa and then a simultaneous step-by-step -step returning to compliance by both the us and iran proceeds over a period of say a few weeks until we get back to where we were um as as of 2015. It's not going to be easy, uh, and I, I expect there's going to be some difficult negotiations. And this is all just to get back to where we were the, with the JCPOA. Not talking about uh, you know introducing uh, negotiations on other issues. That's that can all be in the future, but that can't mm -hmm. be part of the first step. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we just heard that Wendy Sherman will most likely be also nominated as the deputy secretary of state who was she used to be the lead negotiator for the iran nuclear deal so that should make things also easier for the biden administration but let's assume that this return to the jcpoa does happen um, we heard from both joe biden and his national security advisor jake sullivan and also even in the democratic um platform that the the party's platform that Everyone is interested in follow-on negotiations with Iran. And as I said, the uh, missile program, Iran's regional activities, human rights, and other issues. How possible do you think these follow-on negotiations would be, assuming that Iran and the U.S. somehow figure out a return to the JCPOA and um, then decide to discuss these other issues? How possible do you think it will be, and what would have to be sort of a give and take what are both sides each looking at and also the, the other regional players that would make these negotiations possible if at all well part of the thinking underlying the original jcpoa even before trump came along was that this this was not the be-all and end-all negotiations between mm -hmm. the u.s and iran that uh, if we successfully address this nuclear issue uh, then we could and should and would go on to talk about uh, some of these other issues. Mm -hmm. So so it's you know if if we can get back to compliance with the JCPOA then then it's entirely not only possible but uh, probable that we're going to have diplomacy on some of these further issues. 
a couple of things that are going to need to be borne in mind that, that don't come easily to a lot of American thinking about this, though. One is uh, we're not the only side that has grievances about the other side. The other side has grievances about us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if Iranian leaders were to sit down with pen and paper and list all their grievances against the United States, um, you know, the we're U.S. Have, and its allies, uh, U.S. and its allies, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a pretty lengthy list there. Just like we think we have a lengthy list uh, uh, of grievances against them. So, you know, if we want to expand the agenda, we have to be prepared that they're going to expand the agenda too, including in areas that, that you know we didn't really want to talk about, but they do. And secondly, and this is especially the case when you talk about things like ballistic missiles limitations and so on. Uh, if there are going to be further agreements that are meaningful, uh, a lot of them are not going to be ones just aimed solely at Iran. Uh, to think that Iran is going to make significant reductions in its ballistic missile capability by itself without being part of a larger agreement that applies also to its neighbors, its rivals and enemies among those neighbors, uh, that's a non-starter. They're never going to agree with, to that. <clears throat> you know, for the Iranians, uh, the missile capabilities that they've developed are one of the you know, only deterrents, as the Iranians see it, against the threats from uh, from others in the neighborhood. Especially bearing in mind that in in other aspects of military force, the Iranians are are really behind. Especially the air force. I mean, we're talking about projecting power, you know, over a distance, and that that is when you usually talk about air forces or missiles. Mm-hmm. You know, m- most of the Iranian air force belongs in a museum, uh, you know, with, with sanctions and uh, everything that's happened over the last 40 years. It's, um, it is no match for uh, even, say, the UAE air force. Uh, so when it comes to you know, a deterrent for striking back, if someone strikes them, they see their, their, their missiles as essential. That doesn't mean they wouldn't be willing to negotiate. Um, perhaps some limitations, regional limitations that would apply to everyone else. I think the one that immediately comes to mind uh, are range limitations. The Iranians have already said, you know, we don't need anything longer than 2,000 kilometers. And basically that statement does pretty much conform with uh, Iranian missile developments uh, as they've taken place so far. That could be, you know, a relatively modest but still significant uh, step if you had some kind of regional agreement that had range limitations like that. You're going to have to do some hard persuading with some of the other you know, regional players, but it's certainly one that we and the Europeans could support because it gets right to the notion of, you know, reducing threats that could possibly come to hit us or at least, uh, you know, hit the Europeans. So that would be my recommendation to focus on something like that. But again, it, it will have to be multilateral. It'll have to be involved many more than just the Iranians because the Iranians will never stand for being the only one to make sacrifices and reduce their capabilities when they're facing the Gulf Arabs and the Israelis and others who are making no such cuts. Hmm. And on this sort of the same subject, you've also written about this idea of leverage. We hear this quote-unquote leverage in Washington these days, and not just from the Trump side, but also from some voices in uh, closer to the Democrats that, okay, whatever happened with the maximum pressure in the past four years, the piling on of sanctions by the Trump administration, and that obviously didn't work in achieving any of the administration's own stated goals or conditions. But let's use this, the Biden administration basically should use this as 
what they call leverage to get, you know, for follow-on negotiations with Iran to gain more concessions. Talk about why you think this leverage doesn't work. And I want to quote from your piece here where you say, punishing the target country regardless of its behavior does not create leverage. It destroys it. Why do you think this leverage um, or using of sanctions, of Trump sanctions as leverage won't work for the for the Biden team? Well, here, here's the basic problem. You, you get leverage by making what you do to the whatever party you're trying to, to lever making your behavior toward them conditional. If the other side does what you want them to do, you treat them better. If they don't do what you want them to do, you treat them worse. And it could be whatever combination of carrots or sticks you're talking about. But if you treat them badly, no matter what they do, then they have no incentive to change their behavior. They're, they can reasonably conclude, look, we're going we're gonna to get whacked no matter what, so why should we do what this other side wants when, when they're going to punish us in any case. And that's exactly what took place with the Trump administration. Um, so for the new U.S. administration to try to somehow make use of these you know, sanctions that in violation of the, the agreement were, uh, were piled on would be simply to continue uh, this punishment without regard to what the other side is doing and it would be just a, uh, a continuation of the mistakes that the previous administration made. And from the Iranian point of view, they would be perfectly entitled to ask, why should we make any changes in anything we do when you're going to whack us and you're continuing to whack us with these sanctions uh, no matter what? That's, that's the basic problem. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about in your piece on about how Iranian moderates were basically made to look like fools by Trump's um, unraveling of the JCPOA and the hardliners have become even more entrenched. I want you to talk about Iran's domestic affairs and basically how U.S. policy towards Iran and the region has impacted Iranian domestic politics over the years. You've had this long career at the CIA also. And um, we know that the shifts in Washington do impact um, the political shifts in Iran. Talk about that, especially as we know the Iranians are going into an important election, the presidential election this coming June. Well, if, if the Trump administration had set out to do whatever they could to weaken whatever forces of moderation and pragmatism there were in the Iranian regime, that they couldn't have done a better job of it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif, uh, to name the, the key figures here, um, you know, really you know, s- s- stuck their heads far out and took risks in, in doing the negotiation that led to the JCPOA. Uh, the Supreme Leader, you know, he, he held his cards you know, closer to his vest, but, but gave Rouhani and Zarif enough slack to uh, to do the negotiation. And then when the Trump administration redinged on the whole deal and implemented the economic warfare, it, it was just tailor-made for hardliners in Iran to say, we told you so. We always said it was, you were fools to negotiate with those perfidious Americans. And now you can see we were right. And that's that. That was the damage done to to the cause of pragmatism and moderation uh, inside the Iranian regime. And I think we'll, you know, we, we may see the effects of that in in the presidential election in Iran. 
uh, come this spring, although obviously there are many other things that are going to affect it, uh, not least uh, which candidates are cleared by the Guardian Council to, uh, to run, that sort of thing. I, I always look at this effect on the domestic politics of Iran as one of the great negative effects of the Trump administration policies to go along with the obvious failure on the nuclear side with everything that Iran has been doing to exceed the previous limits, and also uh, being at least as active and really more active than they were before in um, doing the sorts of things that get described as nefarious regional behavior. I'm thinking in particular of uh, things like the attack more than a year ago on the Saudi oil facilities, something that the Iranians were not doing at all before uh, the U.S. administration tried to uh, destroy Iran's own oil trade uh, completely. So we're concerned more about those external things, but you're quite right, Nigar, to, to not overlook uh, the considerable effect on domestic Iranian politics and how that's going to affect Iranian policy in, in the years to come. Mm-hmm. And um, I also want to talk about this agenda of regime change. We know the Trump administration has at least publicly denied that they were pursuing regime change in Iran. But how much of, of the policy of this administration, specifically the president himself, and then also people around him like Secretary Pompeo, for example, how much do you think the the goal of regime change was something pursued by this administration? And what what, is, what would be the damage of that for for the Biden team's path to reviving diplomacy with Iran? Oh, I think there's no doubt that regime change was the holy grail for uh, people like Mr. Pompeo and probably the president himself. Uh, and others we would describe as as hardliners in in this regime. You can look at the uh, the set of demands that Secretary Pompeo laid out publicly uh, in a speech, uh, you know, a couple of years back, um, of things that he, he expected Iran to do. And it, I mean, they were so extreme that uh, they basically consisted of a demand to for Iran to roll over and play dead and not have any foreign policy at all. Uh, or, or to put it differently, if anyone who uh, acceded to those demands really would be a different Iran and by almost by definition, a different regime. You know, the harm comes, and this is related to uh, what we were talking about a moment ago uh, involving deterrence. Uh, I think that the biggest destroyer of deterrence is an objective of regime change. Because if you are part of the regime that would be changed, and you know the other side is trying to get rid of your regime, that kills entirely any incentive uh, to cooperate. If, if indeed the other side is determined to get rid of you no matter what you're doing, which I think would be a very reasonable conclusion for Iranian leaders to reach as they looked at the policies of the Trump administration. But this part, I think, is repairable. Uh, there are lots of things that uh, the Biden administration can say and do to persuade Iranian observers that no, regime change is not part of their policy, however much it was a part of the previous administration's policy. And uh, simply by engaging in good faith negotiations with uh, whoever is in power in Tehran, uh, that itself is, is an indication um, that uh, we're, not, we're not as interested in achieving regime change as, as the previous uh, group was. Well, on that note, Paul, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. It's been a pleasure, Nigar. Thank you. 
That was Paul Piller, senior fellow at Georgetown University Center for Security Studies and a former CIA officer who used to be national intelligence officer for Near East and South Asia. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.